Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody. It's me, Barb, welcoming you to episode 79 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So I am recording this in late February and it will be come out in the first week of March. So I'm going to say happy spring. The month of March is one of my favorite months or it was for most of my life. The reason why I love March is because spring is coming for one thing and the days are getting much longer and now daylight savings actually starts in March. And in my religion, which is the Baha'i faith, you know, I don't, attend a lot of Baha'i functions. I'm a very independent thinker and prefer to worship alone. At any rate, Nauruz is coming and Nauruz is the new year. The Baha'i calendar starts and finishes at spring. The first day of spring is the, is the new year, which makes sense when you think of everything coming alive. And Jack's birthday is March 20th. So he was born on Nauruz, which is kind of exciting. And it's the last day of the fast. So every religion has some sort of fast, whether it's Lent or Ramadan. So in the Baha'i faith, the fast is, is the first 19 days of the month of March. A 19 day fast where you just eat or drink before sunrise and after sunset. So it's not easy. I actually haven't fasted in a long time. When you're pregnant or nursing, you don't have to abide by the fast or you can modify it simply because you need to keep your body healthy. And I'm still nursing Jack quite a bit. I wanted to share a few things that I often do before I get into it. And this episode will sort of be a little bit of an interruption in the story of my job loss and my scenario with Roy, that long, long relationship and all the ins and outs of that. If you follow me on social media, then you know the month of February, 10 days of February was a good friend of mine, Tom Walton, passing away. He had a cardiac event just before or after kayaking. He was found by some neighbors on the riverbank, kayak on top of him. They performed CPR and actually got him breathing again and his heart beating again, but he never ever did wake up. The damage to his brain was significant. He had been without oxygen long enough to have very significant brain damage. And so the bad part is this is a 70-year-old man that was like a 50-year-old man, so healthy. He's just somebody you didn't think would die young of a heart attack because he was just incredibly healthy. He ate well, didn't overabuse alcohol, didn't smoke. He was happy. He practiced meditation and yoga. He did all the things that you would do to live a happy, fulfilled life. And he did. Loving wife, wonderful family, unbelievable piece of Northeast Delta Dental here in New England, fitness-wise, kayak racing, road racing. He was a coach of runners at a community college, just an amazing person. And I knew him when he first arrived in Concord years and years ago, and he taught at Concord High School. I had him for a class I took as a sophomore, and it was called Traditions Worth Preserving. And really, Tom Walton is a tradition worth preserving. That's how I feel about him. He taught in the public school district here, same one I'm in, for several years. And Chris Rath, who I've talked about before, didn't care for him. And I've said before that she doesn't really like anyone that's going to make her look small. So if you're somebody that is doing really well, you have to do it really well within her frame of success. Because once you are bigger than her, or I don't know, you show that you will defy her. And when I say defy her, she oftentimes would insist that teachers say or do certain things that make no sense. And if you said no, suddenly you were in defiance and she would somehow find a way to get rid of you. There are like 16 teachers that did nothing wrong that she decided she didn't like and got rid of. I'm sharing this as it relates to Tom simply because 
he was an amazing human being that gave so much to the district. The outpouring of love around his death is huge. And according to Chris Rath, he was somebody that shouldn't teach in the district and shouldn't be around kids. And she just, you know, had him resign, just like she had me resign way before he should have. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars of retirement and social security that you would be putting into the system. As a teacher in New Hampshire, it's all the same as a state worker. We get good health benefits. I got good health benefits and retirement and all of the things that go along with a job in the public, whether it be state or local. When that was about five years or six years before it happened to me, I remember running into him after I lost my job and him just sitting with me and just really understanding what I'd gone through and what it was like. We talked about the nature of a human being that would inflict such such awfulness on people. And as time has gone along, I've actually really gotten educated rather than sort of sitting in trauma, which I did for all those years from my job loss to Molly's death. I functioned now, I can see it so clearly in a real reality of trauma where leaving Roy after I'd lost my job meant that I'd lost my job for nothing. You know, like, oh my God, not only do I not have a job, but I don't even have the relationship with the person I lost my job for. Current day Roy would probably try to deny that any of this was true or happened. It's how people that behave like him function. But I have enough evidence and news coverage and emails back and forth to really lay out exactly what happened to me, and how deeply ingrained my job loss was in the behavior of Amy, his wife at the time, and then ex-wife. And I had forgotten in my narration of that part of my job loss that one of the main things that she complained about was that I had spoken to a guardian at Lightham at the request of the elementary principal. And I said no at first. I said no like three times. I did not want to step in because I just knew that this would come back to haunt me. And this was before I'd even reconnected with Roy. I spoke with a guardian ad litem because I was horrified at what might be happening to Morgan and Teresa and the reality of their life. And that came back to haunt me. And not only that, but I got no support from Chris Rath or from Sue Noyes, who was the principal. Now she had left the district at that time. I can't feel as much sort of anger toward her because she was gone. But when Amy and Bob went to Chris Rath the summer after their divorce, 2010, they made up all that's gobbledygook about me. And part of it was around the fact that I had spoken to an attorney that represents children. Now I'm a teacher. Teachers are mandatory reporters of child abuse. I need that to be clear. I really didn't have the, the opportunity to say no. I could have gotten as much trouble for saying no as I got in for saying yes and speaking to the GAL. I do know that the GAL was, was very supportive of Roy and felt that both of those kids would be better off with both parents. What I said to the GAL at the time was that I felt that both of those kids would be better with neither of them. And that's my opinion and my judgment. But I say it here because if this story is interesting to you and you do any research into what happened, you'll see that it was really, really awful. Again, I have to own my participation. I chose to do it, but I certainly wasn't treated right. What superintendent in the history of superintendents tells a person that has been now vilified by two people that she only knows from one meeting. She told me if I retaliate against Amy, then I will have a disciplinary action. So I had a judge tell me if anything further happens, come back. I asked, can I go back? I need to go back to court. I went and Jean Connolly, the principal at the time said, you need to clear that with Chris. And when I emailed Chris, secretary wrote back and said, Chris does not have anything to say to you and does not want to talk to you. That is horrifying. Right there, I should have actually just gone public because that, that's not okay at all. 
And it's hard for me to sort of lay it out here, telling the story without seeming angry and catty. But I can't imagine, I can't imagine a superintendent getting away with it. And I let her, I didn't fight it. I never went back to the judge and said, here's what they did. A couple of years later, Amy and Bob continued severe harassment of me. I was terrified most of the time. Bob did a bunch of things. It was mostly Bob. And I went back finally and laid it all out. And I had evidence that they bragged about causing my job loss. The judge was horrified. And I actually got a restraining order and, and Bob tried to appeal it. And we were going to go to the state Supreme Court. And I spent hours of my life putting together everything. I actually have recordings of the restraining order hearing. And the judge asked me, why didn't I come back back then? And it's because I thought I'd lose my job if I did. And, you know, I lost my job anyway. All of this stuff connects to my friend T-Dubs here because he, he suffered a similar fate and he resigned. And what he was able to do, because the rest of his life was stable, because his relationship with his wife was solid, because he didn't have all those other things going on. She was also a teacher in the district. So they weren't going to lose insurance. He could get it through her and she would still get her retirement. So their financial situation was better. All of it was better. But he reinvented himself. He became a collegiate coach. He got hired at Northeast Delta Dental to be a fitness coach. He started this huge kayaking and canoe racing reality. And, and he just inspired so many people. And I remember him saying, you're free from her now. And I just didn't feel free at the time. And so much of my constraints were my love for Roy and my fear, my abject fear of losing him. And I have my own psychological issues I can, I can go to there around losing him. But the number of things, the number of things done in the process of my dismissal lead me to feel that Chris Rath actually has narcissistic personality disorder. I am not a therapist and I have an amazing editor who always, always, before he creates something for publishing, makes sure I'm okay with what I said or tells me, you know, I really don't think this is going to be okay. And so I like that. So I want to share with you right now a book and it's called Power. And it's by Shahida Arabi. It's a bestseller in applied psychology. And it says, Surviving and Thriving After Narcissistic Abuse. And so I read the book. And if you feel that you've been the victim of some sort of treatment that goes beyond sort of everyday poor treatment, you know, when I think of, you know, narcissist Greek God was the guy that stared at his, he just stared at his reflection in the water all the time. Oh, I'm so beautiful. I love myself. So people with narcissistic tendencies can be very self-centered. We think of narcissists as people that just think they're wonderful. That's a very small piece of narcissistic personality disorder. The bigger pieces of the actual disorder are how they turn that around and treat other people. Things they do to maintain the illusion that they're the best, that they're better than everybody. And I don't want to spend a whole 35, 40 minutes talking about that, but I do want to clarify that I wouldn't throw things about, you know, to describe Amy, to describe Roy, to describe Chris Rath. To one day talk about my friend Robin, my ex-friend Robin, or to talk about Lenora, or to talk about Stephanie. I have a long list of people that fit a lot of the descriptors in this book. And it's horrifying to some extent that I just seem to jump from the frying pan into the fire over and over again. And so I've done as much research as I can on myself. And what's wrong with me? What's broken in me that these are the people that I'm drawn to? And not drawn to, but that I go to. I feel like I'm a moth or a butterfly around a light. It kills them, but they stay there. They don't fly away from it, even though every time they touch it, they get burned. And I think, okay, what is it with me that, that I do this? So Tom's death, Tom's very early death, 
has devastated me, like they do. Mr. Ludi's death devastated me. Mrs. Ludi's death devastated me. And I have a very hard time. And now that Molly's gone, any death is a bit of a trigger, which is also incredibly normal in people that have lost children, especially. But anyone that's had a traumatic loss, any similar loss triggers your own again. And so, of course, I go right back into that. No, 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 panic stricken. This can't be happening. And I get very sad and it brings me back to times that I knew these people and all of the memories. And I have a lifetime of memories with Tom Walton. I met him when I was 15 and he died and I'm 59. 44 years, that's a long time to know somebody and then have them go. To be clear, in the last 10 years or so, and especially since Molly's death, I haven't seen Tom at all, except here and there at road races or at cross country meets when I was coaching in Bow. But he, whenever we do see one another, always a big hello, always happy to see me, always 50 questions about how I am, how's Kenny, how's Gracie. After I had Jack, I ran into him at a road race and he's like, well, look at you. You know, and it was sort of this big, you know, <laughs> of course you'd have a baby at 57. You'd be the one to do it. It's a big loss for me in the sense that he's one of those background people, my balcony people, as KK would say. People in my life that I might not see all the time, but that I rely on in my thoughts and in my emotions and what I'm thinking. And so now he'll be a spiritual member of my spiritual team as opposed to a balcony person, somebody here on earth that I include on that team. So I wanted to share that a little bit just because I feel like it's important. I just finished editing the book, the memoir that Virginia wrote. And about a week and a half ago from now, mid-February, I spent an afternoon editing it. And it was a chunk of the book that was incredibly difficult. It was Molly and life support, unplugging her, the funeral, all of that. And so after that, I had Kenny go and get drinks. We had alcohol. And I haven't had any alcohol since New Year's. And I haven't had any since this time. So I don't want to get back into that lifestyle at all. And I was pleased that the drinks didn't make me feel like it didn't feel better at all. At any rate, I finished that book. And so this is, this is one piece of the catharsis and the moving through everything that I need to move through to really live my best life in the absence of Molly here on earth. I'm also right in the middle of the CrossFit Open. So when this comes out, the Open will be over. And it's an open competition that's done worldwide where people in their CrossFit gyms perform workouts and they're judged, their scores tabulated by a judge and then sent off. And you can see how you compare worldwide. Like everything for me, I'm parts of me that are insecure, which is a lot of me. I'm always looking for ways to prove to myself, not others. I, I realize now it's not about other people. It's about me that I'm fit or that I'm young or that I'm healthy. And oftentimes I haven't really taken good care of myself. So at the end of week one, I finished 31st in my division in the world out of about 2000. So that's not bad. All the women in my age group, because I chose the easier, the scaled version of the workouts. Next year, I'll be sure to do RX, which is the harder. So I'm really about 1500 out of about 4,000 or 5,000. So I'm still way toward the front. I'm thrilled and happy that I can work out what I find is that the workouts are just so helpful for me. And in the years after Molly died, I couldn't do it. If I worked too hard in the gym, I got really upset and fell apart. It was too painful. It was like listening to music or being touched. Feeling my physical discomfort was a trigger and I would start to cry. I'm very, very glad that that aspect of my grief has abated. I think a lot of it is Jack. <laughs> when you have a baby, you can't not be touched because babies just crave it. You know, he can sit with Kenny next to him on the couch and watch a movie. And if I'm watching the movie with him, he's in my lap. It's just a different relationship, mothers, and their children, than I think fathers and siblings. Not black and white. There's a lot of variation, but for me, I noticed that way. So the first week, as I'm recording this, I'm about an hour away from doing workout number two. But in the first week, I went head to head with Emmy, who's a coach at CrossFit Amesbury. And she 
is 43 and has two kids and she's unbelievably fit. So I thought she would smoke me. It's really fun. I love that Aim Spray does this. Every week we go head to head in front of an audience and you know anything in front of an audience is, you know, you're right there for everyone to see. And so Emmy and I finished just four calories apart at the end of it. I had 223 reps and she had 219 reps. So I won and I beat her and her status was, I guess it's true, you can't beat a unicorn. And she calls me a unicorn because I'm not normal, because I'm unique and I had a baby and all this kind of stuff. So it was just a really fun week, but it was also incredibly sort of humbling to see that I'm fitter than I think. And I have to redefine what super fit means because my next birthday puts me into a whole new age bracket. So back to sort of the chronology of what's going on. I'm in the part of my life story now where I've decided to have a relationship with Roy and I've fallen head over heels in love with Roy. Had quite frankly, in this book, when it talks about people that have narcissistic habits or behaviors or tendencies, one of the first things they do in a romantic relationship specifically is they idealize you. After the idealization comes the devaluation and the discard. And so I would have to say all of this could apply to me. The idealization time came the whole year, 2009, 2010, that I was helping him, that I was going to court and testifying. He wanted to have visitation and he wanted his belongings back and he wanted his reputation cleared because Amy had said some pretty inaccurate and horrible things about him. And so I did all of these things. It's funny because I think back to my friendship with, with Amy, I don't classify her as having these behaviors quite as much. I'll tell you, they were quite a couple. <laughs> They remain that way. Their communications now are incredibly telling. But I, I do remember that in my friendship with Amy, I was either she was either buying me gifts, like things that were over the top, or accusing me of, you know, deserting her and hating her. And it was a very bizarre sort of cycle with her. And Roy's wasn't quite so bizarre. And same with Chris Rath, in the sense that I'm either this, you know, I'm this amazing woman that she just thinks is incredible or you shouldn't teach here, you're disgusting. And there's not a lot of middle ground. And so that idealization year was 2009, 2010. Once the divorce was final, then we headed into the fact that I was going to lose my job. And I have to say that Roy jumped in to be helpful, but he did it in a way that I didn't ever really feel that he was truly on my side. It was more about him. Like he was going to get back at Amy for what she did, which is fine, except there were things that he did that didn't help, especially later on going to the press and that sort of thing. It ended up making confidential things newsworthy. And, and it was humiliating to me. And I still live here in my town where I grew up. And so the number of people who know me and know my family and have known all of my life, they're right here. He lived far away and no one knew who he was other than his relationship to me at this point. So all of those things were really difficult and tricky. In researching how to talk about the next steps, I realized I'm not quite ready. It's much more intense and convoluted and tricky than I thought. <laughs> And so I'm struggling a bit with how to, how to tell a story that has all these little branches I could go off on. I feel like if you watched Stranger Things, I feel like I'm in the upside down under the cornfield or the pumpkin patch where all of these pathways go to different places and all interconnect somehow. That's how I feel this story is. 2009, 2010, all in love with Roy. 2010, 2011, losing my job and realizing I have to like create a story for my family because at this point, no one really knows what's going on with Roy and I. Kenny, of course, had his ideas. So anytime Chris Rath threatened to make this public, this relationship, I panicked. You know, hindsight tells me most people knew anyway, but she, she knew she had me. And the other piece that I found out later in this story is that my attorney 
was definitely, I think, getting paid off by the school district attorney to get me to resign. Because 90% of what he told me was not true, never happened. Conversations he said he had never happened. The amount of lying that went on between Ed Kaplan, the district attorney, and Glenn Milner, mine, is horrifying. And it leads me to believe that I'm not the first teacher to be in this situation, especially with a superintendent like Chris Rath, whose husband is Tom Rath, the head of the Republican Committee in New Hampshire, has this giant successful law firm. She just wielded power. And we're still, as a school board, it's interesting, all these behaviors and all of these policies and all these things that remained unchanged and were never followed. Because what she did in her leadership, I'm talking about Chris Rath here, she just shrouded everything from everyone and basically told the school board what to do and how to do it. She made sure that the people on the school board were people that liked her. That school board at the time, they all went out for dinner on Friday nights. Like five of the nine board members were connected socially. They could all walk to the SAU building where SAU means school administrative unit. So the superintendent's office where the meetings were held, they could all walk there. They lived in in this sort of upper class neighborhood. It was a time for me where I believed what I was told and I had enough to hide that I was easily manipulated or I thought I had to hide. As the years went along, my struggle became, so 2010-11 is the job loss. It was not long after I lost my job that Roy for the first time said, look, I can't do this anymore. You either need to leave your family or we're done. And at that point, my family had no money now. I made the good money. I had medical insurance. I had all of it and it was gone. I was going to have to figure out what to do. And so I sort of, at that point said to Roy, come on now, I lost everything helping you. You can't just leave because it's inconvenient for you now. That's not fair. And he actually could see that that wasn't fair. He also had some struggles going on in his own professional life. He's an airline pilot and you know that industry fluctuates and is affected by a lot of things. And there were two or three times that he was what's called furloughed, where you basically don't work. You're not fired. You're still an employee of the company, but you either make hardly any money or you make no money. You can use sick pay. You can, so you can use all of that to keep getting paycheck. And if you go back to the airline, you've used all that time. So there were a couple of times that, that happened for him. And I found that when those things were going on in his life, things were much better for us because now he needed me as much as I needed him, if that makes sense. And he very much relies on his appearance and what he has to say. So he wouldn't consider dating somebody when he was on furlough because he would have to say I'm an unemployed pilot. He did a million things to stay busy. You know, he's unbelievably skilled carpenter. He can, he can build things and carve things and repair things and he can do it all. And if he doesn't know how to do it, he reads how to do it and does it. He's incredible that way. When I look back on why he stayed with me when he would hold it over my head all the time that he was lonely and didn't do anything and he was just waiting around for me, I realized, no, <laughs> none of that is true at all. He had a million things going on. A lot of them I didn't know about. Relationships and friendships and all sorts of things, which is fine. I get it. I'm up here with Gracie and Molly living in a house with Kenny. My marriage ended though. My marriage for all intents and purposes ended in any healthy way when I lost my job and when I really, really was settled in with Roy. So 2011, 2012, I ran for school board. I was on the school board now and Roy went after Chris Rath. And so I won't go into all the details of that, but it became a mission for him. And I know that he really felt treated badly for how his divorce went. And he also was very, very active in going after Amy's divorce attorney, who has since been disbarred. So obviously a lot of her behavior wasn't solid and he was right in doing that. 
he spent a lot of his time doing these things. And so I was an integral piece of both things, of going after Chris Rath and of going after Linda, Amy's attorney. And so we worked together on a lot of these things. When I had to appeal my restraining order against Bob, Roy helped me a ton with that as well. And he would come to those hearings and sit behind me. He actually had a restraining order as well against them. They couldn't go near him either. It's interesting. (laughs) Amy had one against him for domestic violence. He had one against her for harassment. And I'm all caught up in both of them somehow. When people say I seek drama, it certainly does appear like I do. But what I seek is people who I feel need help and they have the drama. And I jump right in. So it doesn't mean I'm not seeking it either. There's a part of me that thrives on on that kind of stress. And I think a lot of it goes back to how I was conditioned as a young child when I was constantly living in stress. I was constantly having to balance and make sure everything was okay. Awful way to live. The other thing that sort of ties into this aspect of my story, and I can't share any details at all about this because I'm a school board member, but in our district right now, we have a teacher who's, who he dresses very androgynously. So here's how I'll describe it. Sometimes he wears jeans and hoodies. Sometimes he wears, you know, slacks and a down collar shirt. Sometimes he wears his beautiful linen suits and sometimes he wears dresses. He wears it all. He's an artist and an art teacher. The kids love him and nobody has an issue with, with his clothing and how he dresses, except one very scary parent. And I say scary because he has quite a lengthy, violent criminal history, is very, very angry now. So he apparently has complained to the school district several times about the teacher and the way he dresses and that he thinks it's inappropriate and we have to change it. We have to tell him he can't wear dresses. Well, why? Why? And why does is wearing a dress a bad thing for a guy when women can wear three-piece suits? Now, this is Barb Higgins talking. I get very insulted when it's weird for a guy to want to be a girl or dress like one, but women can want to be like boys or men and dress like them all the time. It irritates me. It's not right. And this goes into all the gender issues that are happening right now. I don't want to waste my time worrying about what a teacher is wearing. I don't mean that in a way that makes it not important, but what a teacher wears is their business. And if it generates conversation, that to me is fine. This father assumes that because he's sometimes wears dresses that he must be a crossdresser or a transvestite, or maybe he's got some sick perversion, or maybe He's a woman or a man, but the fact that he's 6'4 with a beard means he should never wear dresses. I think we need to stop saying dresses only belong on women, quite frankly. Lots of cultures, the men wear dresses, robes, gowns, skirts. It doesn't matter. So this is a big thing right now. It's up in arms, people protesting outside the elementary school. So this teacher is being crucified publicly by the side that is against all this. And this father has enlisted the support of a, I can't remember the name of the group, which is probably better. I don't want to mention it here. They're linked to white supremacist sorts of things and very, very anti-transgender, all of it. They claim they are, they cite these things. And so his big issue is that if it were a middle school or a high school, he wouldn't care, but it's elementary school. And why should his eight-year-old come home and ask questions? I think it's a wonderful thing to come home and ask questions. And how you answer the question is that age appropriate. Hi, my, my art teacher wears a dress, but he's a guy. And my answer would be like, well, why can't, you know, lots of cultures, the men wear dresses. People like, some people are very creative in what they wear. Sometimes I wear dresses. Sometimes I wear pants. Your clothing is your clothing. That would be my answer. He just assumes that there's some sexual thing behind it. And gender and sex are two different things. How you express your gender has nothing to do with who you want to sleep with, quite frankly. It's just, it's two separate things. It's not my job to decide what somebody's clothing means. So my connection to me is, here's a teacher who's just getting decimated publicly. 
and people are digging into his past and finding out things and all of this. If he has things in his past that are bad because they're bad, that have nothing to do with what he wears, that's an issue that should be dealt with. You know, you have to be very careful with people and what criminal histories they might have or whatever they might be hiding. That I understand. But I am so triggered lately by how badly he's being treated publicly and how much pressure this puts on our school district. And I watch the administration take very good care of him. And then I get angry that I had an administration decimate me. Jim Connolly, the principal of Concord High, and Chris Rath, the superintendent, and Green, the assistant principal, a whole host of others were terrible to me, dishonest and terrible because they were bullied into doing it. I also had forgotten that a parent friend of mine who was a good friend of mine, our Gracie and her son are close, told me that Gene had pulled her in and said he had no choice but to treat me the way that he treated me, that Chris Rath had said it was his job or mine, and that I was no longer the barb that pushed his daughter. Bullshit. I was completely me. But it was heart-wrenching to hear that, and she refused to help me. I think she was afraid she'd get in trouble. And so I knew that. This teacher at least has unbelievable support and a lot of parent support and community support. All of this is going on while I'm recording episodes around cheating on my husband, starting a relationship with Roy, reaping the bad rewards of those decisions, losing my job. And all in the meantime, all that really matters to me are these two children. And like in this situation with the school district right now, I only care about the kids. The adults can figure it out. It's the children that matter to me. They should be able to go to school and be happy not be in the middle of adult issue. That's how I felt about Roy's kids, that they were, all of this mayhem was just going to affect them negatively. And again, their story isn't mine to tell, but they were a driving force in why I just continued to decimate myself over and over again at great cost to my life. So in 2011, I started, was my first school year not going back. So I started looking for other jobs. And that's when I started working at VLAX, the Virtual Learning Academy Charter School. So I'll talk a little bit about that fall, and then I'll stop. As always, I seem to have these 18-month chunks of time. But I started working at VLAX. It was terrible money in the beginning. They just give you a handful of online students because it's a big learning curve. The technology is much easier now. There was no Zoom back then. It was phone calls, and, and I would correct things online. It was just very different. But I loved it. And what I loved was that Tony, the HR guy, knew all about what happened to me, and he didn't care. He didn't care. He knew what I was, and he was willing to hire me. And I think I probably could have gone and worked in another district. And there are times that I regret doing that. But I also was very pulled by Roy. And an online job could be done anywhere. So if the time came that I was to actually move out of this house and take Gracie and Molly and go start a life with Roy or try to go back and forth, you know, get a place of my own and all of that, this is a job I could do no matter where I was. I just needed the computer in my lap. And so this was a big driving force around taking this job. I also started timing timing piles and piles of road races, tons of road races, Granite State Race Services, and I still time races there. So two things happened at this time. I had these neighbors up the street, Jen and Dave, and we were good, good friends. And when I lo- reached out for help, when all these bad things were happening to me, they declined. They said, no, we can't help you. It's not that we don't love you, but we don't want to lose our jobs. And I didn't think I would lose my job at the time. I just wanted someone else to speak up to me and say, I'm not the crazy one. Amy's the crazy one. And they were afraid of her and they should have been. They were right. So at this time, it went to my road race boss and said, we don't ever want to talk to Barb. We don't want to be around her. I can't time races with her. They said all these horrible things to me. So my boss, Bob Teshik, who I've known since I was in high school, who's another Bill Ludi alum, like Bill Ludi Road Race, all of it, calls me on the phone and shares all this with me. I was, couldn't even function. I couldn't even see straight. The other piece with Jen and Dave is they were both working at Concord High. So here they are 
working in a place I used to work that I no longer work. And I was super helpful in actually getting Jen the position at the high school. I was still in the district at the time. Her first fall at the high school was my last fall. It was one of those moments where I was just dumbfounded, where I felt like a brick in the face. And I, and I couldn't believe that Bob was giving any credence. And so I could no longer time races that he was timing. So what happened is he started suddenly getting more races than me. And I'm like, what? And then he was big in the running community. So all my friends were now his friends. But I was isolated and humiliated and embarrassed. So this was another part of what was going on with me. The social isolation was intense. And now I lived two houses down from a family whose children used to be best friends with my children. And Gracie and Molly didn't understand this. Their children were told not to talk to Gracie and Molly. So they're on the same school bus and they go to the same school. Fortunately, none of them were in the same grades. Gracie was oldest, then the next, then Molly, then the next. And so they weren't in the same class, thank God. But suddenly the neighborhood was completely divided. And it was clear that Gracie and Molly were the ones that should be, you know, excommunicated from the neighborhood. And so any big neighborhood function where everybody was there became incredibly uncomfortable. And the other neighbors didn't want to buy into it. So lots and lots of neighborhood-wide things just stopped. When they did happen, they were incredibly tense. And oftentimes I was asked to not go by Jen and Dave, not by any of the other neighbors. I love Jen and Dave now, and I don't share this at all to lay blame on them. They were reacting in a way that they saw best for their family. You know, it's not how I would react, but look what happened to me. You know, they still have all their kids are alive. So clearly they made better choices than I did around who to help. All of this was going on with me in 2011 in the fall. The next thing that happened to me here is I met Robin. Robin Grant owned a local gymnastics school flits in our town. And her daughters, I knew her, her youngest daughter. She had run track for me. She reached out and I got along really well with her daughter. Her name was Jordan. And she reached out and just said, Look, I don't know what's happened to you, but it doesn't seem right. What I've heard from you, all of Jordan's friends, because a lot of that whole social group was a big track group, a big hangout in Barb's classroom group. And I had had them in health. I just knew all these kids. And so she took me to lunch and we went to Cheers and we had this amazing lunch. And what I noticed at first was she did all the talking. 45 minutes, I heard all about her life and what was going on with her. And that was that was fine. I didn't mind listening. It was actually nice. And I was out in public with somebody and not ashamed to be with me. And then I told her everything that happened to me. And so she offered me a job. And how was I going to say no to a job? I needed all the money I could get. And it was something that would keep me busy. It would give Gracie and Molly gymnastics for free. And so I took it on. Fall of 2008, I'm doing my sabbatical. Fall of 2009, I'm entering school, having had my best school year ever. The fall of 2010, I'm two months away from never teaching in Concord again. The fall of 2011, I'm an online PE teacher. I'm a gymnastics instructor. So it's all fine. But I am making a third of what I made before, and I have no health insurance. So this is horrifying and bad. And Kenny is getting sicker and sicker and sicker. His insurance issues were different because he had, could get Medicare and Medicaid and all that because of his kidney disorder. So it was sort of okay, but not really okay. Things were really falling apart. And during that time, I also, my friend Tony convinced me that I should run for school board. So I, I did. I signed up to run. Only two people signed up and there were two seats available. So I was going to, I was going to make it no matter what, but I still bought little signs and put them out and about. And I remember the two of us ran. It was all citywide then and like 5,500 people voted for me. You know, one person could have voted and I would have gotten it. That's how it was. You know, the seat was there, but it was just such a show of love for me and support. When I had a lot of people tell me what a great idea it was. Chris Rath was not happy. <laughs> so the fall of 2011, I remember I cried and cried a lot. Robin and I would work together in the morning and then she would leave 
And I would stay for like two more hours and I would do a lot of vacuuming and cleaning and organizing and getting things ready for the afternoon, things that she no longer had to do because she could hire me to do it. But I just remember feeling somewhat like, oh my gosh, I have a master's degree in education. I was making $70,000 a year ago. Now I'm making $10 an hour and I'm vacuuming a gymnastics gym, which is a fine. There's nothing wrong with doing it, but I was heartbroken. It wasn't my gym. I wasn't the owner of it. It was really difficult for me. What was good about that file was I was swept up in my friendship with Robin, a lot like I got swept up with Roy, which I, I see now looking back on it. I didn't see it then. And Roy had a very hard time with Robin because he just felt that she took me away from him. He wanted me to, you know, I applied for a million Massachusetts jobs. I had job interviews in Massachusetts, a million, maybe five or six. But my panic was that I, that I was going to lose my house, that Molly and Gracie's life that I created for them would go away. And I didn't want that to happen at all. The fall of 2011 was tricky that way. I was dealing with my neighbors, not speaking to me and watching Gracie and Molly cry and cry and sob and just get treated so badly and feel like, what did they do wrong? And trying to explain that it wasn't their fault. I had my road race boss somehow believe the words of someone else that he'd only known for a little while. And I got him the job there. I got Jen the job at Concord High and gave the job in the race timing company. And then they won't speak to me. And I'm, I'm just like, what, 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 you know, you know, it was hard for me to not to take off really personally. And then I got hired at this online job and was surrounded by professionals that loved me. So it was okay. I mean, it was okay. The best part of all I think though was working with little kids in the gym and learning that, that my, you know, my two years in gymnastics as a child all came back and I was an effective and, and useful piece of that business and that life. So it's amazing how quickly things can fall apart and how one thing leads to another to another. And I thought at that time that that was as bad as it could get. <laughs> Little did I know. So anyway, if you have questions about anything I say around NPD, this book, Power, is super helpful. It really explains things. It was a lot like The Body Keeps the Score was for me. It was eye-opening and I had to put the book down several times. I actually haven't finished the whole thing because it's too difficult for me to read because I just feel foolish for having been tricked by this kind of behavior is how I feel right now. I have to get through that and process it. I'm going to end here. I'm going to head off to Battle CrossFit. It's another CrossFit gym that I'll be coaching at now. Thank you for listening. I'll end like I always do. Be good to yourself first. After that, be good to someone else. And as always, in the words of Bill Hubbard Jr., every day on the announcements, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.